Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. I'm Chapin Hemingway, joined as always by Lee Carlo and Jeremy Fisk. And this week we looked at Karin Kusama's Destroyer, starring Nicole Kidman. Um, and then we're going to move on to a uh, discussion um, addressing some uh, emails that we got. So you guys are finally emailing in, which is awesome. And then we're going to wrap it up with our top five nonlinear movies. I spent my whole life scrapping, jealous, hungry, scared. I want to find something decent, something good. You can be better than me. Okay, guys. So this this question, I hope, will tie us back to Destroyer, but it's not exactly about it the first time. But I'm hoping we'll get there. Um, but in two- <laughs> what happens if we don't? <laughs> Fuck. Well, if we don't, um, we'll have to start all over again. Um, <laughs> in two weeks' time, and the world is waiting with bated breath, we will be revealing our uh, fixies. Um, and in the fixies, we. Uh, Kind of list nominations, but really there are top five sort of um, acting, actors, uh, performances, directors, movies, screenplays, etc. Um, and so I assume you, you guys, as I have, have started ranking them already. And I, a question I have for you guys is, how are you guys going to, how have you found that you are going to draw the lines between director and screenplay and picture? Um I'm particularly interested about that because it's something we talk about a lot. We often, um, I remember back to the um, First Reform podcast, uh, we were, I think you guys came on different sides of what's to blame for the movie not being, not living up to quite the hype that we thought it was going to be, the screenplay of the director. And um, so I'm wondering where you're going to draw those lines and how you're going to draw them. And well, I, my question to you is, as far as Destroyer's concerned, there's obviously you're thinking of something for this. Yes. Is why you asked it. Correct. Um, do you want to reveal what you, where you, you, it lied for you to sort of put us on track for Destroyer and um, then we can kind of get into it? I don't really. I kind of want to reveal that later. But to me, there was, um, there was a clear line drawn. And so um, I'm sure that'll come up in our discussion, but I, I felt it was pertinent to the time because we are going to be putting together our lists and we probably won't have time to talk about it on our epic two part fixie episodes. I think it's really a good question and it's one I've been thinking about. And in fact, if you go back and if any of our listeners want to go back on iTunes and listen to some of the older, um, Fixies podcast, specifically the second one, which I listened to recently, and Chapin sounds like death on it. You'll know it by that. Um, but you bring up that point very specifically, talking about, um, and actually Jeremy does too, talking about Tree of Life, especially, um, where Jeremy ranked uh, Terrence Malick as his best director of the year, but Tree of Life did not make his top 10 best pictures of the year. Um, so it's definitely an interesting point. It's an interesting thought process to kind of go over in your head because it's so easy to, especially with director and, and picture to say these, 
coincide. But I think we've seen a lot of movies this year um, when it comes to that, that it doesn't. And I don't have an exact answer of where I've drawn the line and how I've drawn the line, at least not yet. Um, and I imagine we'll get to it to some extent in the Fixies podcast, but it's something I've absolutely been thinking about and like how, you know, what separates, you know, an, an interesting story even from a good screenplay or a bad screenplay. Like, is there bad dialogue, but the story is good or vice versa? Like, I, you know, all those things have kind of crossed my mind. Um, so, I mean, I guess to answer part of your question, it's something I've certainly been thinking about, but I don't know that I've drawn that line quite yet. Yeah, I think the easiest place you can draw the line is when it comes to performances, because sometimes there's a standout performance in a movie that's otherwise not very good. And that's kind of easy to to uh, distinguish those two things. Um, it's sort of the more blatant example. Um, but when it comes to everything else, yeah, the line becomes a little bit blurred. Uh, like, for example, for me with Destroyer, I thought Nicole Kidman gave an amazing performance in this movie. I don't think that, and I think the the screenplay itself was actually relatively pretty good. And I'm a sucker for these sort of noir films that you have to kind of piece together with little clues and and subtext and the brooding protagonist trying to figure it all out. Like I'm a sucker for that stuff. Um, but but where does it kind of fall for me? I think it kind of falls for me on the direction side because it had the pieces in place, but then you maybe compare it to another film that's done it better or you kind of hoping it would reach, and and when it doesn't, you can kind of go, well, in that other film, the director did so-and-so a little better, set the tone a bit better. like uh, specifically with this movie, I kind of in my mind compared it to Brick, Ryan Johnson's first first movie, which I thought had a really good noir sort of uh, tonal feel to it. And I think uh, Johnson's direction was a big part of that. Whereas here, not that uh, Karen Kuzuma did a did a bad job. I just feel like there she left some stuff out there when it came came to designing this picture. So if you want to, for me, for Destroyer, that's sort of where I drew the lines. And um, moving forward with our fixies, I mean, it's a question I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about while I put together this list, and maybe I can have some more solid answers. You know what movie comes to mind, Chapin? And, and really, I only kind of know this from your, um, your opinions of it, because I haven't seen it in a long time. But The Aviator, uh, you've often criticized for having a really terrible script. Yeah. Um, Scorsese elevated that movie to what it is with his direction but if you look at those three kind of pivotal categories screenplay director and picture you know the aviator perhaps failed as a overall picture because of the screenplay but the direction was good the screenplay was bad the movie was okay so like while they do you know all kind of tie into each other you can point to one or the other being good or bad or at fault to a certain extent with a movie like that. And there is a movie that I, I've, in particular, and I won't reveal it now, that I've, you know, I have found myself thinking about that line because it never crossed my mind for, you know, one of the better movies of the year, but another category, I, I felt like it does, it, it belonged in the conversation. So, um, you know, it is 
all about separating those two things. And I think to do that, you have to think about all the pieces and figure out which one worked, which one didn't, and how each of those affected the end result. Would you guys agree with me, though, that the easiest way to distinguish is probably with an acting performance? Well, it is. Uh, And it's funny you brought that up because I I have some of those this year, too, where, you know, I, I think that, you know, not just in terms of like the acting was good in a mo- in a movie that wasn't you know quite either deserving of it or wasn't that good Chapin we had the conversation um, on the Stars Born podcast about Crazy Heart you know with Jeff Bridges outstanding performance mediocre movie sort of a forgettable movie but people remember it because of the performance I'm not even talking about like that like you know I think there's instances where a performance can elevate a movie you know but you know, are we crediting the performance or are we crediting the director for getting that performance? Are we crediting, crediting the movie? You know, I think, you know, the performance is part of it. So we have to, if, if that does in fact elevate the movie to a certain extent, we have to give the movie credit. We shouldn't necessarily take that credit away, but it, if it is the performance, maybe you do have to separate those two things. Jeremy, I, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I, I think it's, I think the interesting thing about, um, performances that they is they can really kind of codify and distill down the elements um but you know the the sort of the lines between screenplay and and directing it and they can kind of show the seams for lack of a better term um and that is really what motivated this question was um, i also thought nicole kidman was fantastic in this movie but I don't know that she's going to make my fix list, and I don't know that that's completely fair because I I had I had some issues with this movie, um, and my my initial takeaway was to blame blame the screenplay. Um, I, I found I found the sort of the telling of it to be very interesting, hence our nonlinear top five. Um, but there were just some moments that that just felt too overwrought and dramatic for you know the kind of storytelling that I, I really like as, as as our view listeners probably know and as you guys do I'm you know my search for the next Michael Mann you know continues and I you know I would love it to be a woman that would be an amazing uh, achievement um, especially for the for the kind Michelle of, woman for the genre so, what Michelle woman Michelle woman oh His gotcha got, oh yeah <laughs> Um, but, uh, uh, yeah, um, but there was elements of this, of this movie that, that just didn't, that really stood out for me. And, um, I, I wanted to blame, blame the writing I, I, and, and, uh, I, I, I thought, uh, Karen Kusama made some really great choices and, and I think the movie as a whole kind of the, the foundation of, as to which the quality of it was built on came from her direction but there were these issues with with mostly the dialogue and 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 a little bit of just sort of the themes and the way they were drawn that i kind of chalked up to the screenplay but i, I could be wrong you know it's it's this is the, the reason yeah I was this is the fine it. line yeah this is the fine line because initially my instinct is to say it was the direction because the screenplay i enjoyed but i think i enjoyed the screenplay more because of its um not necessarily subject matter, but it's design as a noir 
uh, piece, a non-linear noir piece, which I just like, but it doesn't necessarily mean that beyond that structure of a non-linear noir piece that the actual uh, line-to-line writing was all that great. Right. So it, maybe it's a little bit of both in this case um, because it is interesting. It is interesting how... Um, the structure of the screenplay sort of keeps you engaged for the most part um, throughout the movie, although you really don't know it's nonlinear for most of it. Um, So whenever I sort of felt a little bit of a lull or um, my attention span waning on this, I I wanted to sort of push it towards the director's fault. But I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. Good. <laughs> Lee, you want to talk about this movie at all? Yeah, I'm just trying to kind of frame my thoughts here because you guys covered a couple of things. Um, you know, first, I agree with you or both of you guys on, on just the, you know, my feelings towards this type of movie, the the noir genre, uh, even more specifically, the, the gritty L.A. movies I always really like. I just like that setting in a movie. Um, what I don't like though, is what a lot of times these movies become is, you know, I don't really know what the term is for it, but they sort of become like these criminal underworld movies that involve corrupt lawyers and evil gang leaders. And I feel like they always fall off the deep end when that starts to happen. And, you know, when, um, uh, when, um, Bradley Whitford, is that Bradley Wilford? Whitford, yeah. Bradley Mm -hmm. Whitford showed up in this movie, um, that's where the screenplay started to lose me a little bit. And I always feel like that's because the screenwriters start to try to overthink things and make things too complicated where, you know, it's, it's on kind of a simple and clean path. I love the way this movie opened. You know, we open with a murder, a couple clues, a flawed protagonist, and we're off and running. And I thought that was really interesting. And for the most part, this movie kind of stuck with that formula. Yeah. But then it started to you know, delve into, you know, like I said, the corrupt lawyer, um, you know, with the flashbacks, her relationships with this gang, um, then launching into her relationship with her daughter and her ex-husband. And I I just felt like, yeah, okay, like some of the stuff uh, I accept being in there. It's all about character development and story development and getting further inside of Kidman's character's Aaron Bell's head. And I felt like it needs to be there, but it felt sloppy because, there were so many other moving parts that had to be dealt with. And I just felt like it couldn't keep up a lot. For a lot of this movie, I was reminded of uh, You Were Never Really Here that we reviewed earlier in the year. Yeah. I felt like it had a similar tone, and you were dealing with, again, another flawed kind of mysterious protagonist. Um, and I liked that movie a lot more than you guys did, but I actually thought that this movie dealt with the the uh, characterization of its main character better. Um, and I thought it was interesting, but it's just the story beyond that outside of that just got kind of foggy and like i said it got over overly complicated for no reason really yeah it's i'm glad you brought up bradley whitford because that was the the sort of example that my mind went to when i was thinking about why i brought this question up um you know i wouldn't call this movie uh you know realistic you know in in a sense, I, I think Jeremy, you're identifying it as a noir film, um, w- is good, and I, I, 
it's not subtle, but there are subtle moments to it. But that his character just kind of when he appears felt very, very out of place to me. Um, I agree. And I, I and also his turn, his turn yeah. felt out of place yes. from the confidence to the end of that yeah, scene it's, it's, was really all you quick. Do is punch him in the face yeah and and those moments and and then and and that kind of and i don't want to spoil too many things but we will probably spoil a movie that i guess is kind of has some twists and turns but um his character kind of gave way to the toby kebble character the the main antagonist in the film um and those two characters in in different ways felt very um you know, over dramatic and kind of felt a little bit uh, out of the sort of um, reality of the movie, for lack of a better word. And I don't mean that's necessarily a bad thing, but I was thinking, you know, is this uh, Karan Kusama? Is is she elevating these scenes to a place where I'm not quite seeing how they fit into the rest of her vision, or was he written this way? And or is it a combination of both? And so I'm glad you brought that scene up because to me, that was sort of the first moment where I felt things were going a little awry. I also came away with this from this movie um, with a lot of questions. Sure. Um, which probably, I mean, it could be me, it could be the screenplay, but um, if you know, well, it, they weren't it, the right kind of questions. You, Jeremy, you and I saw this together, yeah. And afterwards, we, you know, to a, to, it's always very obvious when we're talking about movies after we see them to like avoid revealing too much when we know we're going to podcast about it but right. we're like trying to uncover a couple things between well, amongst ourselves basic questions right right so but they were not the types of questions that you leave a movie being like oh my gosh like i'm going to be thinking about this for days they were like no what no the fuck? Were, like yeah, this is exactly. frustrating like this was this should have been cleared up and you know that again i think that had to do with like i said like our I, you know biting off more than she can chew is not correct like it's it wasn't more than any one director could have handled it just wasn't done well and perhaps that like we were saying before is the screenplay like you start delving into too many subplots and you're going to end up not being able to tie them all up like the the the, i don't even know if you can call it a subplot but the um the the, uh petra character tatiana maslany like (laughs) aside from a little piece of paper if if you blinked at the end of this movie, she'd still be tied up in Nicole Kidman's apartment right. for all you know. Like that was so, you know what I mean? Like it's just little things like that I felt like just weren't able to be cleaned up at the end. Um, and then of course uh, something we haven't quite spoiled yet that really is a bit of a head scratcher and what happens with uh, uh, our main character at the end. Aaron and Bell's those character, are the, yeah. You know, they're the type of questions that you know, you don't leave saying that's a thought-provoking movie. Those are the type of questions you say, this is a flawed movie. Right, and that's why I'm saying that. Was that the screenplay that didn't answer it, or was the director being, so. trying to be uh, too vague on purpose to try to leave some sort of mystery where I I don't so I don't know the answer. What was that question, Lee? Like, what, what did you... I mean, like? it's a spoiler What's, alert. Okay, yeah, spoiler right. alert. Yeah, the spoiler. So Nicole Kidman dies, presumably, it, it, at the end. And we don't know why. Which, did from she die a from kick in the stomach that left bruises? a bad bruise. Like, I, I, I don't know how she died. <laughs> and how she sort of had to die. Like, she kind of knew she had to die for this to wrap up. Like, for her yeah. to give off that information to her... Her, uh, her brilliant partner. Her, her partner there. Right. And um, 
she, it was sort of like she knew like that's I don't know and it's just like why is she all of a sudden now dying yeah well I, yeah I didn't I don't they weren't super clear about whether that was what was happening or not I guess but um. yeah but uh, where I want to give this movie a lot of credit is in my own personal sort of love of the this this genre you don't get it very often um and this movie you know it tried it was almost there it was fun it was fun at times to follow and try to put together and figure out the clues and see where this was going like you know it's not easy to do and it's not easy to do well i you, you could probably name a handful of movies that have done this well and um you know it wasn't quite there but you know at points it it came close and you know for what that's worth you so, give it a little credit so let's so a little hypothetical here do you guys think that kusama or the screenplay looked at the genre looked at the story and said okay there's been plenty of you know these noir bank robber anti-hero flawed protagonist mystery you know private detective movie private detective you know terrible parent divorced parent in the meantime like this everything we've seen in this movie we've seen a million times before you keep that simple and clean and just go with that formula like i said before and you probably got a pretty entertaining movie and kind of what you're alluding to jeremy something that keeps you interested and and you go with and you're happy with to elevate that to something you know that you know is goes beyond what we've seen a million times before you've got to add some layers and that i think is perhaps where we're suggesting this movie failed is that what you yeah, guys think i agree like, i think so i think that's a perfect way to put it because you add the layer of like her daughter and you add the layer of her daughter's story about the mountain that made zero sense in the end yeah. <laughs> and like little stuff like that all like those little side storylines like those got to come together in a movie like this this whole point of the, a movie like this is it's a jigsaw puzzle that you're t- you're 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 putting together and if some of the pieces you know aren't fully formed you can't make a whole picture in the end and i think that's you're right that's where where it fell short so part two of that question then like what would you have preferred like would you have preferred they said hell with that stuff just going to make the same movie everybody's no, just seen have before it, and we sit no, back no, with just feet have up it, and enjoy it or have it work tie it together use that storyline okay, with but, the daughter but, but, use that storyline with the daughter's boyfriend like have it come together in a way that that works but would you we've had this conversation before would you rather have the effort that fails or 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 not have the effort and just have something that in this case you know works i i'd rather have the effort that fails i i didn't dislike this movie i'd rather have this movie um and i'd rather have especially since nicole kidman gave such an amazing performance and gave it her all and almost in a weird way seemed like she was in a different movie than everyone else because of just how heart-wrenching she was taking this well, and, a, and a lot of you go ahead Chip. oh no I, well i just give another uh, like another option which would be i think i wish they focused a little bit more on the elements that i thought were quite original about this film and i wish they had 
um, focused on that and made the story more about that than I think they ended up. Like what, what element? Are I those? mean, to me, I think the original aspect of this is, I mean, and we, as we're going to talk about this idea of this nonlinear storytelling, but also the idea of what was eventually revealed that these people, um, that, uh, Nicole Kidman's character and her lover who initially was, I believe like a DEA or FBI agent, um, played by uh, Sebastian Stan, uh, eventually decided that they were going to go along with his bank robbery so that they could, I mean, they essentially became the criminals that they were um, emulating. And they decided... As as they were undercover. Correct, as they were undercover. Yes. And um, I think that that, I'm sure that's been explored before, but that was an original idea. And the idea of... Um, this this that storyline unfolding at the same time as the current timeline with um, this the reappearance of the of the gang leader and um, uh, the obvious like toll that this um, that uh, he, uh, spoiler alert his, uh, Sebastian Sands character's death and that moral quandary and decision that that Nicole Kidman made um, 17 years ago has on the on the life she has now. To me, that's very interesting. This idea that mm-hmm. that you could um, uh, fall into this, uh, you know, eventually seek out. Um, you know the, the the lure of of criminality uh, was impossible to resist, and then the the impact and the um, that this, that decision has on your life um, in the form of you know someone dying, and also you know the just being going against everything that your character and your job says that you should do. Um, but I think there was a a problem with that one. We go back. We don't really get a sense of why they um, why they made that decision. We see them, um, you know, kind of uh, in in the flashbacks, which are 17 years in the in the past. Um, we see them struggling with kind of the violence of the group, the kind of the heightened um, sort of drug related uh, atmosphere, and we see them. I I I I, the, I sort of in the implication that they are becoming more. Um, you know, addicted to dr- the drugs that this gang is doing. Um, was that your? They should have explored that. They should have exactly. explored that more. And, though. that should have been. It and like been. when it came to the violence and came to the seduction of the group, they should have. They should have showed them either falling for it or, or or becoming more addicted or the allure of that lifestyle it never was real clear yeah, you didn't see yeah, that. And, that and there wasn't anything to like let like you said the allure of that lifestyle we didn't really see the allure of that lifestyle they were right. all hanging out in some shitty apartment like everybody looked like they weren't <laughs> like the, like the money that you know supposedly this gang had made from multiple bank robberies wasn't on display you know, it just sort of looked like they were infiltrating like a a, a drug right ring and, and, rather than bank robbers. And what was confusing was that they they didn't seem like big timers. Like, why would the FBI right. and the Los An- and the LAPD invest all these like resources into bringing down this rather you know ragtag group of people? Um, yeah. But I think most importantly, we don't really get a sense of why Nicole Kidman pushes them to you know go along with the bank robbery, like. Um, I mean, maybe the idea that this lifestyle, this undercover lifestyle is is not sustainable or it has this, you know, effect on them or maybe it was the drugs. We don't really get that. And that is the interesting that's the interesting point. And you, of course, have to know or at least understand that turn in order to understand the guilt that um, her Nicole Kim's character carries around in the present day. Um, 
and uh, I, I there again there like are, there are traces of it here and there throughout the movie, and so that's enough to kind of keep you connected to it. And I love the idea of um, her character revisiting all these all the members of the gang, you know, seventeen years later, and you see the impact that these this these lifestyles have had on the other people in the gang. Um, and I thought that was interesting as well. But again, those sort of like, it's like they danced around everything you they wanted to say. Like you could tell that that was an important turn, right? Like that's the whole movie is that is that mm-hmm. turn and the and the impact and the consequences of that turn. Um, but we never really got into it with enough detail. And I think the stuff with the kid and the boyfriend that was all extraneous, and a lot of screen time was spent on it um, without. I don't think a lot of. Um, a lot. Get, oh, I didn't get a lot out of that personally. Right. Well, it, and there it was, really well, wasn't part of the story either, especially there, with the husband. And it was repetitive. Two or three scenes saying the same thing uh, with her and the boyfriend, and that, you know, it didn't help that I, you know you weren't getting the gre- greatest performances out of the um, actors in those scenes either. So nothing was really getting across the way it, it should have. Um, do you, do you guys? Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, do you do you guys think that the did the aging process in this, the seventeen years and the the amount most everyone aged, did did you was that distracting to you, or were you okay, okay with it? Yeah, that's so. That's what something I wanted to just bring up. With I've never seen like two things done really, really well work against each other so <laughs> much as in this movie. So Kidman's performance, I really liked. And the makeup was really good, but it like I was so distracted by like how she looked and like uh, how different she was from earlier in the movie that I felt like I was like, what this is just so weird. Like I felt like it was making everything feel too much like a like a performance in a in an act. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like the makeup was done well. Like it wasn't like you know Whitey Bulger uh, or Johnny right. Depp in Black Mass, where you're like, why? But I is felt this... like it was detrimental to the movie, though. But it was it was a bit distracting in that you're like, what? Why is everybody aged so much in less than two decades? I was yeah. It was sort of amazing. I couldn't. Even, I didn't even recognize. Tatiana Maslany, which I mentioned to you after, I had to look up who that was. I knew I recognized her, but I didn't figure out who it was. I was sort of amazed with how, what, whatever they did to Nicole Kidman in the past, the seventeen years. Yeah, that was impressive too. Um, she was just, she looked like she did in nineteen ninety five. I mean, I, I and she just doesn't look like that anymore. Um, Pre plastic surgery. Yeah, no, I mean, no joking, no, no kidding, and and I don't know how they did it. Um, but she she looks great and kind of to the in the aid of the story she looks innocent and bright-eyed and um ambitious and you can understand why she might you know go along with something like this and you see the person she was before the incident um i yeah i mean i'm kind of with you guys too the uh, the with the present day timeline they they just they aged her a little too much i mean th- there is a pr- right like she didn't look like an older like broken down version of the earlier one. there's a problem like she just she she just um like you and this is one of the issues with the non-linear storyline is we see her like after the events of the movie i mean in the in the in the chronology of the movie so she's had the shit kicked out of her she probably hasn't slept for 48 hours and 
um, you know, had taken care of her, herself. But um, in general, she's just too kind of fucked up. I mean, I don't know. Like, they've made her look so bad. And maybe that aided in making her look so good um, in the, 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 the past storyline. But, yeah, I mean, it just – it kind of um, – I, I wish they just went like twenty percent back on the on that makeup for her, and I think yeah, it would have worked. I totally it agree. I just, think that's it. You know, you just you don't you kind of give her a little bit of gray hair, and you 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 dial back a little bit that that look, and I think it works just as well without being distracting. Well, and and let the performance tell you a little bit about you know what this has done to her over the oh, years. Oh, absolutely, yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to all the and it's kind of too bad because the makeup is incredible. Like there's a lot of close-ups of her face especially at the beginning of this movie. And like as soon as I started looking at those, I'm like looking, I'm trying to find like flaws in the makeup. I'm like shit, this is like really well done. You know, then as you get more into the movie, you're like, okay, this it, it's not like you said Jeremy distracting. It's more like what you were saying, Chapin. Like it's not the right character that we're seeing. Versus the character that's that's written and that is being portrayed on the screen. Yeah. Okay. So the other thing, I w- just quickly on um, Kusama's direction of this movie, because, like I said, I was I was kind of hooked at the beginning of this movie for several reasons, um, but also I was interested in what she was doing. Like she had a lot of close-ups. Um, she was doing things like you know, there was like a random shot overhead shot on a cup of coffee like it, it just was really seemed like the beginning of this movie was really working hard with you know her decisions and getting inside the character's head specifically inside Aaron Bell's head and then I thought that got abandoned and the rest of the movie was all just simple camera setups like three-point lighting with a few exceptions there were not like nothing really was brought to it and I don't know why she abandoned what she seemed to start with or if you guys felt that way or what I agree. That's initially why I sort of blame this on the director was because um, it sort of started out very stylistic and um, contributed to that cool private detective noir feel. And then it sort of, as the movie progressed, it got less and less creative in that. And that's, you know, for me, half the battle is, is keeping that, keeping those shots interesting when telling a story like this, where there's not a, not a ton of quote-unquote plot to keep it going um i disagree a little bit i i liked what she did and going back to my michael mann point or michelle woman point as jeremy put it out (laughs) um i i liked her i thought she did a really great job with the action scenes i think that there was you know you you one thing i think that male directors and 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 more action-oriented directors do kind of poorly is the action becomes routine and it doesn't feel um dramatic and the violent scenes in this movie were 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 just sort of surprisingly violent and they were they you get these explosive moments that that really raise attention i thought the two bank robberies were um pretty good in that sense and um you kind of you get the sense that at least in the the one in the present day where she sort of stops it at the last moment um, that one kind of felt the tension was even even more elevated because you weren't quite sure whether uh, she was entering that situation legally. Nicole Kidman's character, and you know, she she shot first, which was kind of incredible. And um, but yeah, I mean, I, I and I also like the foot chase. Um, I think uh, there there was something interesting about uh, and 
it kind of goes back to this this character being a woman and the uniqueness of that. You know, she's not as physically imposing as perhaps a male protagonist would have been. Um, and you see her just kind of being run down throughout the movie and um, you feel that threat, you know, like she that she may not be able to handle herself as physically as she can as, as, uh, as a male protagonist might be. But she kind of she and so she's much more vulnerable, and you see that you see her body kind of disintegrate over the course of the movie. But also, um, she has to kind of out outsmart and also kind of like you know sort of circle go go sort of the, a more secure a circuitous way to apprehend people, um, if that makes sense. Right. I mean, her body reminded me of the the car in the Big Lebowski. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> like you just over time just taking more and more of a beating until it's pretty much done um and i thought that was that was a clever way to to go about it okay, okay should we move on yep. okay so this week we've we are our prayers were finally answered and we got an e- we got some emails um and uh we got a couple of different emails, and then we're gonna we're gonna pull out some questions that we got. We finally talked about some eighth graders last week and got some emails. Yeah, right. They're all, they're all hooked up. Oh, emails. What's the what's an email? I just know what a DM or an instant message is. Oh. Yeah. Um. So I'm gonna go through a couple of these. Um. So let me start with one. Um. I'm curious how you all feel about eighth grade in comparison to Lady Bird from last year. Uh, and there's a little bit of, I'm going to read through this quickly. I remember walking out of Lady Bird last year and thinking the performances were good and enjoying the movie, but after thinking about it and hearing all the praise it got, being a bit puzzled. With time to process it for a while, it occurred to me that the problems Lady Bird deals with at, at, are very small in comparison to a lot of the other coming-of-age films. See Boy Erase, The Perks of Being a Wallflower, The Hit You Give, etc. And while I felt the performances were good, I was surprised how much acclaim the film as a whole got. On the contrary, with 8th grade, it also deals with such small problems in comparison to other coming-of-age movies, but it all felt so much more compelling and important to the main character than Lady Bird did. I credit that to the tone and style that Bo Burnham brought to the film that Lady Bird seemed to lack, and for that reason, it made 8th grade so much more compelling to me. So, Lee, you specifically wanted to target that one, so why don't you start us out? Yeah. Um, this this was... Uh, I was really glad to read this email because it really made me think about um, both Lady Bird and another movie that came to mind, which you guys have heard me gripe about before, is Juno. Um... <laughs> and, you know, I, I've probably not always been the most articulate when criticizing Juno, and I've also probably been overly critical of it. But, you know, I've also I've, I've always said that that movie just tried too hard to, like, create this sort of character or caricature of Juno. And it was this, like, quirky, you know, you know, high schooler that talks the way no one else talks and, you know, seems to be you know, beyond her age. And it, it, it just takes away from any story that's there. And Lady Bird was guilty to that of that to a certain extent, too. And, you know, from just drawing direct comparisons, eighth grade didn't do that. And eighth grade was just, like, simple and showed this character with all their flaws and was essentially any character plucked out of any eighth grade in the country. Yeah, she was and kind of the opposite of that. Exactly. And I, th- I thought that was so much more interesting and refreshing to watch. And I think... You know, that might just be kind of the answer I've always been looking for with a movie like this. And because I, I thought eighth grade was great. And I agree with the emailer that it just had so much more, you know, lasting power. And, and it was so much more thought provoking than what you're left with with a movie like Lady Bird and Juno. And I liked Lady Bird, uh, Lady Bird uh, enough. And I, I was a little bit 
um, surprised after I saw it to see the acclaim that it was getting. Um, but Sarah Ronan was good in it, and it was you know a, I think a um, you know a good effort by Greta Gerwig. But again, it was not something that I was I have been left thinking about. In fact, until I read that email, I hadn't thought about Lady Bird since last year. But eighth grade is going to be the total opposite, I think, for me. And I think it's about that character, like just, you know, not trying so hard with that particular character. Yeah, you probably nailed it, but I haven't seen Lady Bird, so um, I agree with your eighth grade side of it. Uh, I I mean, to be completely frank, I think I liked Lady Bird a little bit more, um, but I I do agree that I think eighth grade handled those issues a little uh, with with more grace and had a lot had more to say, I, I suppose. Um, than Lady Bird. I I think that what I took away from from Lady Bird was it was essentially a a movie about you know a girl. Of course, it's it's four years later. It's a girl in her senior year of high school, as opposed to going into high school. But so she's dealing with different issues. But also she it's about her relationship with her mother, which I thought was very compelling and um, interesting. I I also I mean to to echo this the the emailer's comments. I also walked out of Lady Bird thinking. What's the big fuss? And it was nominated for Best Picture and got a lot of attention. And eighth grade is not getting that. Like like I said last week, um, I felt you know eighth grade was appropriately a small scale movie that I I enjoyed. I don't I didn't feel like it needed to be anything. But I think what this this email is saying is didn't quite understand how the movie got so much attention. And I would agree with that. I just kind of slightly liked eighth, uh, uh, Lady Bird a little bit more because it dealt with slightly more adult topics and so was thus a little bit more interesting for me. I have to believe in a world outside my own mind. I have to believe that my actions still have meaning, even if I can't remember them. I have to believe that when my eyes are closed, the world's still there. Do I believe the world's still there? Is it still out there? Yeah. We all need mirrors to remind ourselves who we are. I'm no different. So this week, in our top five, we did our top five non-linear films. So, um... I would like to know, guys, how you defined nonlinear. Did you have any criteria that what made this list a little more difficult? Yeah, this is essentially top five best movies of all time. Right. <laughs> uh, the only thing I had for criteria was it just couldn't like it couldn't just be flashbacks. You know, we had to we had to have some sort of way that we came back to a point in the movie. It couldn't just be a movie that was being told and then they had a flashback and then. You know, that's almost every movie. Um, yeah, I had the kind of the same thing. I mean, there's some in mind that you could argue are just flashbacks, but I, I sort of looked at the way the flashbacks were used um, and determined it that way. I don't know that I have a perfect um, explanation of that, but uh, like Jeremy, I, I got a lot of uh, just, you know, my favorite movies. I do have a, it is a memorial list, which I uh, won't reveal, as is our new custom. Um, I'll wait and see what you guys yeah, have. I, I also have a memorial list. Might be the same. Um, my only criteria was that the, um, that the, the I tried to avoid flashbacks, but the non-linear, it had to like serve the story. It had to 
be for a reason and kind of one would enrich the other. So um, do you guys want me to start? Sure. Okay, my number five is one of the best scripts in recent memory that I can remember, and that's Adaptation, directed by Spike Jones, written by Sir Charlie Kaufman. And Donald Kaufman. And Donald Kaufman, yes. Thank Post-humously. you. Posthumously. Don't forget, don't, don't forget Donald. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know how much we love that movie. It's um, Opens our podcast. Quote, opens our podcast. Yeah, it's just... It's one of those like all timers, influential films for me for sure. Yeah, I mean, talk about I, a great script and a creative way of telling a story. Um, this just is right. And, and and I think there's also something to be said about. I didn't think of it initially in my first. I, I the my other the my remaining top four I thought of without assistance, and this one I needed to look up a little bit. And I think there's something to the fact that you don't think of it as one. Um, it so they yeah that is true. Like where is the of, actual pull? Like where where does it go nonlinear? Well, he is. He, well, it tells multiple stories at once. Yeah, yeah, and it and we go to the dawn of time. We go to you know the caveman, and then we yeah. go to is that like we I cut to, where you're... we cut to Laroche. <laughs> <laughs> we cut to Kaufman, fat, old, masturbates. <laughs> <laughs> Master Bates of the book jacket of Susan Orlean. <laughs> uh, okay. Great. Great. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you go? Uh, so this, my number five was actually one I didn't see on any lists. And um, it's not your sort of um, classic confusing nonlinear. It really just kind of starts and ends at the same place. And it's Sunset Boulevard. Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard. And the reason I put it on this list is because it starts with our main character, a dead guy narrating. And then we come back to find out how that happened. Right. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, all right. My number five um, is nonlinear in the sense that you uh, continuously go backwards in time, but you're watching the same linear story over and over again in Groundhog Day. Ah, that's a good one. I didn't even think of that one. So really you're watching a linear story, but it continuously changes as you flip back to the beginning each time. Uh, So sort of restarting that narrative. Um, Yeah, I guess that counts. Yeah, it's going to count. We'll give it to you. (laughs) It's going to count because I don't want to just have all the same ones as as you guys. So That's a great pick. I like that a lot. Great. Okay. Um, my number four is, and I, I picked this movie to kind of represent a type of movie, so I'm glad that it's on here, and it's Terrence Malick's Tree of Life, The Tree of Life. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> fuck you, I guess. Um, and and the reason it's on here is, uh, you know, we, we bounce back and forth between, I mean, this movie is like a kind of a, to me, it's... Um, much like I mean, it's definitely non-linear it's definitely non-linear and to me it's like it's much like a it's much like a memory right like we we it seems like the the movie is a little bit of a like a the mem the, the memory of of um of i guess what would be sean penn's character and childhood and the way that uh the brilliance of terrence terrence Mal- what terrence malick does here is you know every moment feels like a memory it's, it's like there's nothing very specific about it. You, like lines of dialogue are kind of come in and out, and 
um, you know, we, as we've talked about in the past, that style has become frustrating, and I understand your frustration, Lee, and why you poo-poo it, but um, I think it's done really well here, and I think that's the benefit of it, is that it, ju- it feels like um, nostalgia and how we feel about, like, memory and, and, and the moments in our lives that kind of stand out to us, and so that's my, my number four. So I, I admittedly have not seen Tree of Life since I saw it in the theater. So, I um, it's been seven years. I don't. I, I suppose it's probably not fair that I criticize it in that way. But I'm curious what um, you, you say. It sort of represents um, other films, but and I'm like trying to think of them. But like maybe the couple that come to my mind are like The Fountain, Aronofsky's The Fountain, mm-hmm. um, maybe even Thin Red Line by Malick. Um, Anything else? Yeah, I mean, I can sort of I can say it. That. I'm sure it's gonna it's gonna like I I mean one that I'm sure isn't if it's not your memorial or might be on someone's list is like Memento is a great example of I mean that's a nonlinear story but you like Nolan is very good about like flashing back and the idea of memory and the way we remember things that you know these there are just sort of these moments that. Um, that kind of come up without without any connection to anything else, but the way that they're filmed and the way that they are put on screen, you just you you can feel that they they, they remind me of how I remember things. Um, See, I sort of take it more of a as poetry, cinematic poetry, than it is about the idea of memory. Well, I think they're both, and I think that I, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I think one is very reflective of the other. Yeah. All right. My I number, agree. my number four is, um, admittedly, a movie <clears throat> I really need to revisit. But I know um, the couple times I've seen it, I really love it. I bought it. It's called uh, "The Killing" by Stanley Kubrick. Um, it's a very Tarantino-esque sort of um, bad, you know, bad guys, bad, like a gang of robbers. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah, about that's it, one I, than... I had as an honorable mention. I hadn't seen it recently enough. Um, of course, that'd pop up as a nonlinear one, which I didn't remember it being nonlinear. So I was like, okay, I pr- that probably means I can't include it. But um, I remember really liking that movie. Yeah, yeah, I it re- I really want to in loving Sterling Hayden in it. Yeah, he was great. Um, all right, so my number four is perhaps one you could argue is. Um, non-linear only in the terms of flashbacks but I think it's a little bit more than that just in the way that they use the flashbacks um, Star is an actor we never talk about on this podcast The Machinist starring Chris Bale Christian Bale Christian Bale yeah. sorry yeah I'm not too familiar with his work yeah he uh, he was on my, on my list about he was in that movie Empire of the Sun oh that's yeah. right right so yeah, and this was the, his movie after that. He's only done a couple. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so this um, this movie's so, garnered some controversy. Someone listens to this podcast the for the first time, they're like, oh, "I'm really enjoying this," and then they listen like, to that little exchange. Know shit, they're like, "What the fuck are these guys talking about?" This is a movie that has uh, over the years uh, developed a little bit of controversy on this podcast. Um, is it is it the machinist? The machinist, okay, gotcha, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Um, a joke just got away uh, from us. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, yeah, Christian Bale obviously lost 
63, 73 pounds, I think. He was told to lose 60 pounds. He lost 73. But the problem is, wanted is to lose even more, and they told or, him to stop. <laughs> like, depend, what, we don't know where he starts. We don't know what his baseline is. Right. Well, the, he got to 110 pounds, um, and he, he wanted to get to 100. I don't know. I feel like it was like an OCD moment of he's had to get to a, like a straight 100, and they're like, no, don't do that. That's not healthy. So yeah, I mean, at that, at that at weight, 10 pounds is a lot of weight. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, he most that's what this movie is most famous for. And over the years, uh, like I said, there were some arguments on this podcast about whether this movie was sp- specifically only known and recognized for that or if it was anything more. And it is a really good movie. And it does deal, um, you know, with the psychology of Bale's character, uh, Trevor Resnick. Um, and through flashbacks, memories, dreams, nonlinear storytelling, however you want to define it, um, little by little more and more is revealed as to why he is the way he is, um, which, you know, in the end, I think is totally worthwhile. Um, but like I said, you could make the argument here that this is sort of just flashbacks, but I think in the nature in which it's done um, is appropriate for the list. It's a great pick. I like that one a lot. Okay, uh, my number three. Speaking of things we, you know, things we don't know very well, this is a movie that um, came out a long time ago and has since kind of been forgotten. But it's um, Orson Welles' *Citizen Kane*. Obviously, I'm kidding. It's one of the, it's probably the best movie ever made, according to a lot of people. But um, yeah, I mean, uh, the whole kind of conceit of the movie is that he dies, says Rosebud. And the these journalists are trying to figure out, or I guess it's one journalist. Is it one or I, I don't remember? But these journalists. Well, it starts with one, but yeah. trying to figure out what the, the meaning of Rosebud, and it's a it's a nice way of telling this man's life it's story. A sled. Yeah, it's his sled <laughs> from childhood. <laughs> uh, and from Family Guy. Yeah. So uh, I think it's uh, I like that one a lot, and I think it's it's a convention that is emulated a lot now but i I don't it was probably pretty original at the time one would think yeah it had to be i don't even know if it had really ever been done i'm sure you could find a foreign film or something but i mean as far as mainstream american cinema i think it was probably up there as maybe the first that's ever done that and he peaked yeah well that's another discussion for another time um my number three is we've mentioned this director already, uh, or I should not say direct, but it is the same director, um, right? Who directed Eternal Sunshine? Yeah. Was it Spike Jones? Spike Jones. Yeah. No, Michelle Gondry. Michelle Gondry. Yes. Okay. God damn it. Same writer. I know you're putting this here to make sure you get it in ahead of us. What Eternal Sunshine? Eternal Sunshine. Mine. <laughs> I mean, the re- when I put this list together, I was just like, I got to do it with the movies that do this non-linear thing the best in a way, like Chapin had said, to serve the story. And Eternal Sunshine is a masterclass in that because the story's about memory, the story's about trying to forget, and the way that it's put together um, really helps get that across to the audience in such a unique way that you'll never see again or had never seen before. So there you go, my number three. Good pick. Yeah, good fucking pick. Um, all right, my number three. Um, you guys may scoff at this pick a bit, but I sort Ugh. of like what it does. <laughs> I, I sort of like what it does with the timeline scoff. in this movie. Um, it's Forrest Gump. 
Um, <laughs> well, what I like about the, how how he handles the timeline of this movie is it, it it does sort of flash back to the story he's telling, but then the story catches up to him, and then proceeds into you know uh, into a linear fashion, which I think is sort of interesting. And I guess this movie isn't totally non-linear in that sense, but it starts that way and then kind of picks up and goes forward. Do you feel that that's crucial to the, and I'm not, I'm not saying this with any, any answer one way or the other, but do you feel that that's crucial to the story, that element? Because you could imagine a, a scenario where he isn't sitting on the park bench, but where they just tell that story from start to finish and you don't right. need that convention. The, the, re- the reason I think it it makes a difference is the Jenny aspect, the Jenny relationship. Sure. Because you're, you know, she is romanticized so much through his storytelling. And then you get to this point where, you know, he just goes on, leaves the the bench, the bus stop and moves on. And that relationship continues to grow. And I think that's the piece that makes that. Yeah. Work. I think that's a great point. Otherwise I think you're right. Like you would just kind of see it beginning to end, but you wouldn't get, you know, his perspective of how important she is mm-hmm. if you did that. Yeah, big pick. Yeah, and it's a great movie. Um, and uh, weirdly, every time I watch it, I feel like once we catch back up to um, real time, that's when the the part of the movie gets a little less interesting. I me. agree. I I totally agree. I don't like the part once they go for it. I always forget that there's still like an hour left in it. Right, and I think that's where, you know, um, it falls a bit. Okay, um, my number two. I just revisited this entire series uh, last weekend. Good thing because it's has no relevance to the Fixies whatsoever. So, um, but it's uh, the second part in this film series, and it's The Godfather Part Two. Um, oh, that's a good. This pick. is a yeah. little bit of a cheat because I believe that the two storylines, except for at the end, um, move pretty much linearly. But I think the idea that this movie going back and forth between. Yeah. Vito getting uh, growing up and uh, Michael's story is in fact nonlinear. Um, I, I what I what I said when I in my intro about about one complementing the other. I think you got you get insight into Michael's story. The sort of the 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 main thread of the uh, Corleone story uh, is is kind of enhanced by Vito's story being told, and um, the sort of the contrast between them is powerful and. Um, I'm not, I think I go back and forth, but I'm not of the belief that that's a better movie than Godfather one. I think Godfather one is still a better movie. Um, and, but, uh, yeah, I think this is great. And also I stole the ending of Godfather two for the ending of the gray area. And, uh, yeah. (laughs) Speaking of (laughs) nonlinear. Classic. Um, all right, my number two is a movie that we've already talked about, um, but again, it's one of those movies that plays with time and memory uh, so well, and it's Memento. It's Christopher Nolan's Memento, my number two. God, I, I still, that's, Chapin alludes to this all the time, remembering the specific theater and the time that you saw a movie, and that, Memento is that for me. Like, that was, I walked out of that movie just being like, holy shit, was that incredible. Like, it went backwards. <laughs> Guys. <Right. laughs> and smartly, too. Like, not only is it, it's not so, yeah, it, it's it, not just, it goes backwards uh, yeah. so that you feel the way that he feels. Totally. Yeah. It's, uh, it's just so amazing. 
Okay, is it All right. number ones? My turn. Oh, my oh, number sorry, two sorry, sorry, sorry. is a movie that uh, comes up on quite a few of my top fives, unfortunately, so I apologize, but it is Mulholland Drive. I feel like it is a perfect movie for this list. Um, another When's the last movie... time you saw that? I feel like I asked you that last time, too. Uh, I don't know. Within the, within a year, I suppose. Oh, really? Well. Oh, yeah. It's one I revisit every now and then. I mean, I, I love this movie. Like, I just think it's so well done. It's so well made. And the story is so intriguing, and I actually think it. The I don't know that the movie gets better every time, but like more and more is revealed every time you see it, or you see different things every time you see it, which just kind of adds to the intrigue of it. And there's still so much that just is so fucked up and doesn't seem to make sense, but that sort of, you know, comes with a David Lynch movie to a certain extent. Um, but the nonlinear aspect of this is so important. Um, it jumps all over the place. It's so nonlinear that your first time watching it, you probably not going to totally understand it or like it which I think was a problem for a lot of people but um, give it another shot it's a great movie yeah I, I yeah. need to see that um, okay two or three more times my number one is, the filmmaker has been mentioned on this but he, uh, not the film and that is The Prestige um, yeah another great it's one it's just it's so important to the movie the layering of it, um, you know, you get to a point where you are there like three stories deep, like one, uh, 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 Christian Bale is reading um, uh, Wolverine's diary and the diary that Wolverine is <laughs> reading Christian Wait Bale's. Wait a second, uh, what movie? X-Men, X3, X-Men United. You've done that before where you were talking about social network and said... Uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Spider-Man. Yeah. Um, no, uh, Jackson. What's his name? Fucking Paul Jackson. Hugh. Hugh Jackson. <laughs> Hugh, Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Um, and, man, so so well. Paul so well Jackson. Written. Okay, sorry, guys. Continue. All right. Guys, number one. Yeah, perfect. So my number one is probably, uh, well, the reason I picked it was because at the time it was, you know, made such an impact on me and it's uh tarantino's pulp fiction for fuck's sake well you you knew that had to be on the list well Um, i was hoping it was your tarantino memorial list or something no uh i still guess i stole all your picks last week but so uh yeah i I don't know what else to say about it It just when i first saw it, it it sort of blew my mind in the way that it wrapped around itself because the stories intersected in a way that they didn't like it it wasn't like it affected the other stories until you got to the diner um but then afterwards you're kind of in your head trying to piece it together and figure out like wait how did this all work and when was what and it just added a layer of complexity and intrigue to a story that was already brilliantly original um that's my number one as well. Um, I said it on our on our uh, Tarantino retrospective. Pulp Fiction is in the right order. You know, it's in the order that it should be. Like a lot of other Tarantino movies, or like you said with Forrest Gump, Chapin with nonlinear movies. Like you could play it in order, and it would probably not be the same movie, but would work just fine. But Pulp Fiction, it, like it's nonlinear editing. And storytelling is the way it should be. It doesn't work otherwise, and I just think that's what makes it so brilliant. Hot take: I, uh, I 
made that don't movie. think he i do not think that i don't like tarantino's nonlinear storytelling i think it impedes him i don't think it had did anything <laughs> but that's all but one of his movies i know i, I don't think it did anything for <laughs> kill bill you think was not better because I, that would be the maybe the one exception to the rule but um yeah i don't know it's not it's not something i love he in his movies but uh i'll let you guys have your number one so, you know this is this isn't a this isn't a podcast to disagree with you on so that's gonna do it for this edition of the get your film fix podcast please send us an email at feedback at get your film it's actually there's a link for it right below your podcast so just click it and send us a comment or question um we're going to be off next week, but have no fear. Calm down. We are going to be releasing a pre-recorded podcast that Lee and I did back in the day. We won't spoil which movie it is, um, but we'll release that while the three of us put together our fixie list. And it sounds like we are going to be doing that in two parts. Is that correct, gentlemen? I think that's a good idea. Okay. Because I, I have an idea of how we might do it differently, but we will talk about that when we're not recording. So thank you for very much, and we'll see you in two weeks. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.